We come to the scripture reading portion of our worship. Uh, we read scripture because it is the word of God. It's the manual for life. It is uh, that which we base all of our preaching and teaching. And it's through scripture that determines what we believe as well as how we behave. If you could uh, stand as uh, in honor of God's word, we'll be reading this morning from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 53. Luke chapter 24, 36 to 53. If you're using the Pew Bible, it is on page 885. 885. Luke chapter 24, beginning verse 36. As they were talking among these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet. That it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hand and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and the repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the inerrant word of God. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, as your word has now been read, we pray for you in this moment to help us to understand by likewise opening up our minds, lifting the veil, 
opening our eyes to see the truth, to see the reality of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. We pray for your spirit and your word to minister to us right now in this place, in this moment. We pray all this for your glory and our good. And in Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, this morning we're going to be wrapping up our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke that we have been calling Meals with Jesus. The plan wasn't to go through the whole book of Luke like we normally would go through books of the Bible, uh, but we just plan on focusing on specific episodes in Luke where Jesus shares a meal with others. We were just planning on preaching that particular text, but also we wanted to highlight any lessons regarding table fellowship or showing hospitality. And I do hope it's been instructive to all of you to see how Jesus extends table fellowship to even the least of these, to the despised in society, the rejected, the outcast. And he calls them into relationship with himself. He invites them to be not just at his table, but to be his followers. And he continues throughout the gospel to eat with his disciples on various occasions. And he uses those meals strategically to continue to teach them, to give them instruction, and to strengthen that fellowship that he has with them. Well, friends, in this morning's text, we see Jesus sharing one last meal with his disciples before he ascends back to his heavenly kingdom to return to his Father. So what we have here in Luke 24 is one more opportunity to reinforce his love and acceptance and one more occasion to teach his disciples and now to send them out on mission. And one noticeable feature here in our text is really the roller coaster of emotions experienced by the disciples. Because it begins in verse 36 with them startled and frightened and confused by the many reports that they've been receiving about their master, their master whom days earlier they saw brutally tortured and crucified. And now the report is he's alive and well. Some women in their company said they they had a vision of angels at the empty tomb announcing the resurrection. And then Simon Peter had his own encounter with the risen Christ. And, And then just recently, two other disciples showed up telling the story of how they supposedly had met Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Now, at this point, these disciples aren't sure what to believe. In John's gospel, This same event, this same meal is recounted. And there we're told that the disciples were huddled together in a locked room. They had locked the door out of fear for the religious authorities. They were afraid that they might be next. They were afraid that very soon it might be them hanging on a Roman cross. But by the end of this evening's meal... These same frightened and confused men, we're told, were going to be bounding with great joy, ready and willing to testify of all that they had seen and experienced, even before those very religious leaders, the very ones who had arrested their master, the ones that they were so afraid of that they were locked in a room together. What, my friends, can explain this transformation of these men. How do you go so suddenly from a huddled group of fearful men 
to a merry band of bold disciples sent out into the world, willing to lay their lives down for a message that they were not willing to compromise or to deny. There must be some explanation. And people don't just change like that overnight unless something significant happened. Unless they experienced something life-changing, paradigm-shifting, so that they walked away with a totally different attitude and a totally different outlook on life. So what happened? What could it be? Well, our chapter this morning, Luke 24, makes it clear that what the disciples experienced was Christ in his resurrected glory. They encountered the risen Lord, and from then on, everything was different. And friends, I I would contend, I would argue that this same life-transforming encounter is available even to us today. It's not a unique experience that only the first Christians were privileged to enjoy. No, you and I can also share in their experience and share in their transformation into new people with a new attitude and a new outlook on life. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of you showed up this morning fearful and confused. Fearful because of the instability in your life and all the unknowns that stand before you. Confused because those whom you trusted, in whom you placed so many expectations, have let you down, have seemingly abandoned you. Well, if you think about it, If you think about it, that's exactly how the disciples felt at the start of our text. Fearful and confused for the very same reasons. But just as their lives, as we're going to see, are completely changed, I pray the same for each of us. But of course, that means we're going to have to have a similar encounter with the same gospel realities that they experience at this final meal with Jesus. And so that's what I want us to consider this morning. Here in our text, we see the disciples encountering three gospel realities in particular. If you want to follow along, uh, look inside your bulletin. You'll see an outline. I've listed out those three gospel realities. First, they encounter Christ resurrected in the flesh. Second, Christ prophesied in the scriptures. And third, Christ ascended in his power. And friends, I do believe that all three can be experienced today, even in this very moment, as the word of God is being preached to you. So let's start with the first gospel reality that they encountered. Christ resurrected in the flesh. It's important for us modern people to understand that we actually have a lot more in common than we think with these ancient first century characters. Like we might have a hard time in our day and age grappling with this idea of a man rising from the dead after being sealed in a tomb for three days. And we just, we just easily assume that ancient people had little trouble believing such miraculous claims. We just think that resurrection must have fit comfortably within their worldview. But in reality, as we're going to see in our text, ancient people were just as skeptical about it as we are. Our passage begins 
in verse 36, with the disciples talking over all those reports that they had heard uh, earlier that evening about the various sightings of Jesus. Cleopas and the other disciple, they just returned to Jerusalem about, with their story about their encounter on the road to Emmaus. Simon Peter just retold his own experience. But as they were talking about these things, verse 36 says, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. In other words, they thought he was a ghost. They thought, they thought he was some apparition. That was their first thought. Within the ancient first century worldview, it was more plausible that this was a ghost than this being a resurrected man. The point is this. The disciples were not anticipating the resurrection. I mean, sure, compared to the secularism, the materialism of our day, their worldview definitely was more supernatural. Spirits, ghosts, apparitions, roaming the earth, haunting people. Those ideas certainly did fit within their plausibility structure. But not the idea of a dead man returning back to life in an actual body, in the flesh. That didn't fit their plausibility structure. That idea would have been just as unthinkable in their day as it is in ours. But not only unthinkable, it would have been undesirable for someone living back then. I mean, just consider the, the, the predominant worldview of their day. The first century Greco-Roman worldview. Now, there were a range of opinions about what would happen to you after you die within the Greco-Roman worldview. Some philosophers would say that you just simply cease to exist, while others are going to argue that you live on as a spirit in another realm, or you might just very well roam this earth as a ghostly apparition. But they all agreed that when people die, they don't come back to life in their own bodies. Bodily resurrection was inconceivable. And more so, it was undesirable. Because Greeks considered the body to be a prison house for the soul. And so death to them was a liberation. Death was viewed as the soul's liberation from prison. So that means within an ancient Greco-Roman worldview, no one expected nor did they want to be resurrected, to come back in a body. And the same could also be said for the first century Jewish worldview. There was a sect of Judaism known as the Sadducees who denied the possibility of there being a resurrection. Now, of course, they knew their Old Testament. They knew all those stories where the dead came back to life. But they saw those events more like resuscitations and not resurrections. Because in those cases, there was no qualitative change to the body that came back. It was still susceptible to sickness and decay. It would eventually succumb to death. But in resurrection, that's where you rise with a new transformed body that's freed from all the effects of sin, freed from sickness and, and, and decay. A resu resurrected body is one that never dies. Now, there was a sect of Judaism that did believe in that. They were known as the Pharisees. But they saw resurrection more as a future 
corporate reality that was going to be tied up with the end times, and it, it, would, it would involve all of humanity. It was a corporate concept reserved for that final day of judgment where all of us, all of humanity will be resurrected in our bodies before the judgment seat of God. So the resurrection of one individual taking place in the middle of history, well, that would still make no sense to a Pharisee. So the question is this, why would all the early Christians whether Jewish or Gentile, insist upon Jesus' bodily resurrection when it went completely against not only what they consider to be common sense, but even against their fundamental religious convictions. Why would they claim a bodily resurrection? The best explanation for that, for this monumental shift in their thinking, is that they must have encountered living proof to the contrary. Something must have shattered their existing worldview. They must have actually witnessed the bodily resurrection of an individual man. And that, my friends, is why Luke goes to great lengths in our passage in verses 38 to 43 to demonstrate that the disciples truly were face to face with a flesh and bones person. This was not a ghost. It's not some mass hallucination happening. And Jesus proves that he really is standing before them in the flesh by inviting them to touch his nail-scarred hands and feet. Now, in response, it says in verse 41, look there in verse 41, that the disciples disbelieved for joy and were marveling. That's a rather interesting way to put it. Now, I don't think that's to suggest that they were outright disbelieving what they saw and touched. I think that's just a way of saying that these disciples were incredulous. It was just so hard to believe what was happening before them. It was all just too good to be true. Now, in order to further prove his point, Jesus asks for some food. I mean, he's hungry. He hasn't eaten in three days. So he wants some food. Look at verse 41. Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Okay. Ghosts don't eat fish. They don't eat anything. And so if the 11 of them, if they just so happened to be seeing things, like if this really was just an apparition or they were just having a mass hallucination, then how do you explain the missing fish? All right, that's, I think, Luke's point. That's what the disciples could not deny. There was a fish on this table. I mean, I, I saw a fish sitting on that table It was there earlier, but now it's gone. And none of us ate it, right? So what happened to the fish? Clearly, we weren't hallucinating. Jesus really was here in the flesh, and he really did eat that fish. That's the point. Now, I know you're you're probably thinking at this moment, well, you know, that's, that's really great and all for the disciples. They're so lucky They got to be there. They got to have that first-hand encounter, the first-hand experience of the risen Lord. They got to touch the scars on the hands and feet. They got to see him eat a fish. If only you were given that opportunity, then you would likewise be transformed like the disciples into new people with such boldness. If only you were were given that opportunity, then you would be able to believe. You would be able to, to boldly proclaim the gospel. 
Because you then would have encountered as well Christ resurrected in the flesh, just like those disciples. So very often we read these reports and we envy their experience. But I think last week's passage, the one about those two men on the road to Emmaus, I think that passage already proved the point that you can actually be face to face staring at the risen Lord and still not believe. Recall in that story how they didn't recognize him while they were walking with him on the road. So for the rest of that trip, Jesus leads them in a Bible study, opening up scripture. And we're told in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And finally, when they got to their destination and they were at table sharing a meal, that's when Jesus broke bread, blessed it, and gave it to them. And we're told there, that's when their eyes were opened and they finally recognized him to be the risen Lord, alive and well in the flesh. But according to those men, the process of recognition actually began earlier on the road. In verse 32, look there, it says... These men say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So it was only until the scriptures were opened up to them did their hearts begin to change. So it wasn't seeing Jesus' face that did that. It was the opening of scripture that began to warm their heart with saving faith. It wasn't because they saw the visible Christ in the flesh. It was because they saw the prophesied Christ in the scriptures. That was the key moment. That's when things started to change. And friends, that leads to our second point. The second gospel reality encountered by these disciples, Christ prophesied in the scriptures. You see, I don't want you to get the impression that the kind of life-transforming experience that we're talking about today is limited to those who got a chance to actually see Christ in the flesh. The point is that a real encounter with the resurrected Christ can be experienced even today by encountering the prophesied Christ in the scriptures. I mean, just think about the the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's also found in Luke's gospel, found earlier in chapter 16. In that story, both men die. But the rich man, we're told, ends up in Hades while Lazarus is carried off to Abraham's bosom. The rich man then asks Abraham to send Lazarus over to to give him some relief. It's so hot down here. Just, Just let him dip his finger in water and just give me a drop, please, Abraham. But Abraham tells him, no, no, that can't happen. There's this great chasm between them that cannot be crossed. And so the rich man begs for, for, for Lazarus then to be sent back to, his, to the rich man's father's house to go and to tell his five living brothers to warn them, quote, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham's reply to the rich man reinforces our point. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
Hey, did, you, did you hear that? If you don't hear and believe the witness of Moses and the prophets, it's talking about the Old Testament scriptures, then neither will you be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That is saying how powerful and persuasive the witness of scripture can be. Friends, that means you are not at a disadvantage because you live in the 21st century, thousands of years removed from all of these historical events. Sure, right now, you can't see the resurrected Christ in the flesh, but you can surely hear the prophesied Christ proclaimed in the scriptures. We do that every Sunday in this church. And that's why, beginning in verse 44, Jesus points his disciples to the scriptures. He opens up the scriptures again. And then he said to them, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and with the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now notice there with me, the mention of the traditional threefold division within the ancient Hebrew Bible. The Bible of Jesus' day would have been divided into three sections. The Torah, that's the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings, starting with the book of Psalms. And so, that the, the, so his mention of Psalms there is just emphasizing the entire section of the writings. The whole point Jesus is making here is that you're not just going to find random references to him found in all of these few verses or few chapters, you know, one here, one there. No, what he's saying is that all of the Old Testament scriptures, all three sections, everywhere you look in the Bible, it is ultimately telling one big story where he is the main character, where he is the prophesied hero. Now notice with me in verses 46 to 47, three fulfillments that Jesus highlights about himself. He says that these three things were written about him in the Old Testament. One, that the Christ should suffer. Two, that the Christ would rise from the dead on the third day. And three, that the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in Christ's name in all the nations to the ends of the earth. Now, wouldn't you have loved to be there that day? To be part of that Bible study he's giving as he's going through all three sections of the ancient Hebrew Bible, showing all of these things to the disciples, just to listen to the incarnate word of God, interpreting the written word of God, showing how it all bears witness to him, how his life, death, and resurrection fulfilled scripture. I mean, just imagine Jesus expositing Genesis 22, showing how the call to sacrifice Isaac foreshadowed the atonement that he just accomplished on the cross. Or explaining to them Exodus 12 and how he's the true Passover lamb who was slain so that God's judgment could pass over us. Or how he's the true manna of heaven who satisfies the soul eternally. Or he's the bronze serpent who will heal us if we would only look up to him. He probably taught them how the tabernacle and the temple pointed to him since he's the true dwelling place where you go to to meet with God. 
I'm sure he explained how he's the true prophet, greater than Moses. He's the true priest, greater than Aaron. And he's the true king, greater than David. And of course, he's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed for our iniquities. And he's the Psalm 22 sufferer who cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's the seed of Eve who will crush the serpent's head. And he's the offspring of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth shall be blessed. He's in every story. He's on every page. He's the point of it all. It makes you wonder if the references to Jesus are so prevalent throughout the Old Testament, then why isn't it more obvious to more people? Why is it that people can read the Old Testament today and still not find him in there? Well, we're told that it's because that's an effect of the fall. It's because of the fall of man. Because of our sinfulness, our hearts have been hardened and a veil, we're told, lies over our hearts preventing us from seeing Jesus in the scriptures. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul explained in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In 2 Corinthians 3.15, he says, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And that's exactly what Jesus does for his disciples in verse 45. He removes the veil that was preventing his disciples from seeing him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That, my friends, is the only way it happens. I mean, you can read the Bible cover to cover. You can listen to a thousand sermons from the best preachers in the world. But unless the Lord opens up your mind, unless he removes the veil, you won't be able to understand the scriptures. That is why we need to pray for his mercy, pray for his power to open up our minds every single time we study the scriptures, every single time we're about to sit under a sermon Pray for the Lord to open your mind. And of course, that's what we need to be praying, especially for our unbelieving family and friends. We got to do our part to expose them to scripture, whether it's inviting them to listen to biblical preaching or for us to proclaim to them the Bible's Bible's message ourselves. But most of all, what we need to do is to pray for God to open their minds to remove the veil so that they can see Jesus as the Christ, as the fulfillment of all the prophecies and all the promises of the scriptures. That's our mission. That's really what we were sent into the world to do. We were sent to all nations, to the ends of the earth as witnesses of these things. As Jesus explained, the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. And so church, that means we are the ambassadors of Christ the King. We are the royal heralds 
of the king's message of good news. Look in verses 48 to 49. He says, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, notice how the disciples are not just commissioned to be his witnesses and then expected to go and accomplish that job on their own strength. Now, Jesus instructs them, you guys wait in Jerusalem, and I'm going to send the promise of the Father upon you, and you will be clothed with power from on high in order for you to be able to accomplish this mission. Now, we actually know by reading In Acts, Acts chapter 2, which by the way, Acts is the companion book to the Gospel of Luke because they were written by the same person. Luke wrote Acts. And so in chapter 2, that promise of the Father, we're told is referring to the Holy Spirit who comes down in power at Pentecost indwelling the first Christians. And the book of Acts really just picks up where the Gospel of Luke concluded. Beginning from Jerusalem, The proclamation of the gospel, the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, has this ripple effect. It's like throwing a a stone into a pond and starting in Jerusalem, the ripple just, just expands out and out and out to the ends of the earth. Starting in Jerusalem, then in all Judea, then in all Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth, we see in the book of Acts the gospel continually preached, not just by the apostles, but by everyday disciples going about their day proclaiming the risen Lord. Because the same life transforming encounter that the apostles experienced in our text is available to and is experienced by every Christian who has since followed them. This leads of course to our third and final gospel reality that we are confronted with in our text. And that is, Christ ascended in his power. Jesus told his disciples on the night before his arrest that it is actually to their advantage that he goes away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So by virtue of his ascension in power, Jesus will now send down his spirit in power to strengthen his disciples and to enable them to accomplish their mission as his witnesses. Let's read the last four verses of Luke's gospel, starting in verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, these verses recount what is known in theology as the ascension of Christ. We're told in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that the risen Lord appeared to the apostles during a 40-day stretch. So for 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, during those days, he would appear and disappear before his disciples, often doing so mysteriously. But now he wants to make it clear that he's going to go, and he's going to go for good. He's returning to his heavenly kingdom to be seated on his throne at his father's right hand. That is what's happening here in verses 50 to 53. And then Luke starts off the book of Acts with this very same event, but with a few more details added. 
Now, notice with me in verse 52 that it says the disciples, they leave Bethany and they return to Jerusalem with great joy. And it's that emotion I want us to pay attention to. Because that is a surprising reaction. You would think the disciples would be sad. Sad that finally Jesus is going for good. He's not going to just mysteriously appear again while they're eating dinner. No, he's gone. You would think that they would be sad for him to ascend to heaven and to leave them here on earth. But instead we're told they're filled with great joy. What could explain that? Well, I think there are two good reasons that it could explain their great joy. First, it really goes back to those first few words that they heard out of Jesus' mouth in verse 36. Look at the end of verse 36. Peace to you. That might sound like just some kind of generic greeting, like, hey, how's it going? But given the context, this offer of peace, it carries a much greater significance. Because you just think about it. Since their last encounter with Jesus, the disciples weren't just gripped with fear. They were gripped with shame. They were shouldering a ton of guilt for having just abandoned their Lord. They deserted Jesus when he needed them the most. So put yourself in their shoes. Suddenly Jesus appears before you and your fellow deserters. And you're afraid, not just because you think you're seeing a ghost, but you're afraid of of what he's going to say to you. You feel so horrible for what you did and and what you didn't do. And now you just think he's just going to let you have it. But the first words out of his mouth are not shame on you, but peace to you. Can you imagine what those words did to the disciples? Think of how those words must have transformed them because the very person, the one person in the world who had every right to be angry at them was actually merciful towards them, showing grace, offering peace, a blood-bought peace that he just secured for them by dying on the cross for their sins, making forgiveness an accomplished reality. That, my friends, is one huge reason to have great joy. And I wonder, have you experienced this joy? Do you know this peace that the disciples were experiencing? Friends, it could be yours. You can have this joy. You can have this peace if you trust in Jesus. Like the disciples, if you give your life over to him today, This same transformation, this same experience of peace and joy can be yours. I invite you to open up your hearts to Christ today. So peace with the Lord definitely has something to do with it. But secondly, these disciples can abound with great joy because they know where Jesus is going. He is going to go sit on his throne to receive all authority over all the earth. The ascension, my friends, was literally the crowning moment of Jesus's life in ministry. It's when he finally sat down after all of his saving work was done. Jesus ascended on high 
so that he could sit down at his father's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He was crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. And that is what the disciples understood about what was happening, about this ascension. Jesus was leaving them. And yes, there is good reason to grieve that in itself, but they knew that he was leaving them so that he could go receive his kingdom to sit on his throne with all power and all authority being at his disposal. So just think about what that means for all of his disciples and for their mission to be his witnesses to all nations. All that power, all that authority is now at their disposal on mission to proclaim Jesus's gospel of repentance. One commentator I read put it like this, quote, there is all the difference in the world between going out on mission with the motive of helping Christ to become king and going out because the one who is already crowned king has sent you. That makes a lot of sense. I I don't think I would feel great joy if I was sent on mission to advance the kingdom of someone whose kingship was not yet established, whose rule and authority was far from certain, who's still competing against rivals. That's actually a scary risk. It's a scary risk involved when you hitch your wagon to someone who might not come out on top. So when we think of Christ's commission to go to all nations, to be his witnesses, proclaiming a gospel of repentance that will not be received well. It makes all the difference to know that he is actually ascended on high and sitting on his kingly throne. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. It has been given to him and he delegates it to us. It matters. It makes all the difference to know that we have been sent with his kingly authority, that you have been commissioned by the victorious crown king of kings. That, my friends, is reason to worship and a good cause for great joy. Let's pray. Father, as we now come to a time of response and worship and song, Lord, help us to see these realities of Christ resurrected, Christ ascended on high, Christ on his throne, having commissioned us with a mission, with a responsibility to be witnesses, to be proclaimers of the gospel of repentance to all nations. May that give us a great sense of confidence and a great sense of joy. And may that joy be expressed now in our worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.